Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's not the last radio hour of the week. It's the last hour of the first radio day of the week. It's Hugh Hewitt from the MGM Grand, but it is a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues in the past on Friday afternoon are available at HughForHillsdale.com. We're going to do two this week, one today and one on Friday because we skipped out on Friday. There's this pesky thing called Hillsdale College, which Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College, is obliged to run. And Friday was Parents' Day, and so people get mad at me when he actually discharges his duty as the president of Hillsdale College, and they don't get their Hillsdale dialogue. So, Dr. Ron, I'd like you to explain to people, why does Parents' Day come in front of their radio listening? Because I have their children, and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> and uh, they, wanna, they want me to be there to tell them their children are okay. And this, this year we had over 900 of them come. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, that's a lot of handshaking. That's a lot of smiling and talking to people, Dr. Larry Arnett. So did it go well? Was it a good weekend of weather over it? The reason so many come is if you send your kid to Hillsdale, you get 10 minutes with every professor your kids got on the Saturday morning of Parents Weekend. And those are 10-minute love fests. I had two mothers cry during my my conferences because I said something about their kids, and they were both good things. And they ball like babies. It's wonderful. Oh, that is so true. Again, Hillsdale College, you can find out everything about it at hillsdale.edu. But I'm not going to waste all my time doing a great big love advertisement for Hillsdale. You have to earn that by going to hughforhillsdale.com and listening to these dialogues. I've got to talk about the fact that tomorrow, Dr. Arnn's brand new book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, which I hold in my sweaty hand here at the MGM Grand, debuts in bookstores everywhere and you've got to order it we're going to cover the introduction today but before i go there i sent you a piece i wrote for today's washington examiner demanding that paul ryan run for the speaker of the house and encouraging him to hold a retreat at which you among others would speak what did you make of the idea that ryan ought to be the speaker and how i would suggest he laid out his terms great idea and uh, your piece is good and uh, i was wondering who wrote it for you <laughs> uh, it's very good and uh it, uh, so what's going on there is uh, the House has no agenda right now, and it needs one. That's what you call for. And if it had one, then the second step is it would have to cooperate toward that agenda, and its discipline is breaking down. The House representatives is controlled by a bunch of committees and by a speaker and a whip and a leader. And they... Negotiations that are going on, some of them are demands that they give up some of their power. But you actually want them to have that power if they will pursue the right agenda so that then they could do what the House does. So I propose this. I propose uh, that they do five things. I propose that uh, Paul Ryan, if or whoever they pick, should say, here's our agenda. We're going to have authorizations and a budget and appropriations and we're going to pass those in regular order then we're going to use that as the base that's this is the second to oversee the executive branch next year we're going to call them in and ask them what they're doing and threaten their budgets if they're doing bad that's the second then we're going to provide for the national security of the nation Hmm. that's the third then we're going to address ourselves to the two main changes that have happened in the American government. And the fourth is the entitlement state, which Paul Ryan has the best plans in the Congress about. And the fifth is the regulatory state. Our representatives should make the laws under which we live, 
and not independent agencies that also enforce the laws that they make. And so they should have those five things. They should say, we're going to do those five things. Elect me speaker, and the, and the, and the hierarchy of the House of Representatives will address itself to moving those five things along, like the contract with America of Newt Gingrich, but uh, more pointed to the political crisis of the day. That's what I think should do, and that's fully compatible with what you wrote, which is actually exactly. It would it would said. have the impact of articulating what it is they are about, as opposed to procedural changes about which I don't think the American people much care, Doctor. Yeah, Rowe. they don't. They don't. And see, every human institution, people can cooperate in an institution if they share goals. And so that's what they should do. They should name, the, just like the Gingrich did in an act of genius in 1994, they should name what they're going to do. And, uh, and if they would do that, they could capture momentum again and also cooperation with one another. And it's too bad that they don't have that. Now, part of that is because of a failure to articulate and a failure to communicate. And God bless John Boehner. He's tried his best, but he's not gifted with some things. You write about, in fact, in the introduction to, to Churchill's trial, Winston Churchill was incredibly gifted in a lot of different ways. And some of those ways are, are lacking in the House. And I think Paul Ryan presents the opportunities to add them to House leadership, which is I, I like Kevin McCarthy a lot, too. You like Kevin McCarthy. But I would say that Paul Ryan is a more gifted communicator. So it might work out with Ryan on top and McCarthy in two that we've got the ideal situation if they do not destroy it by intra-party fighting beforehand. And I'm curious about Winston Churchill's attitude towards party because a lot of people now hate party. You see this GOPE or you say uh, uh, different kinds of derogatory people who are party people. I'm a party guy. I've always been a party guy. And I make no bones about it because Disraeli said those who rise by party should not be ashamed to support party. And I think Churchill was a party man as well. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but not too much. He, uh, <laughs> he changed parties twice. Well, that doesn't mean he wasn't a party man. It's just yeah, that he was yeah, flexible. He always joined the party. He was often in his life. So Churchill, about party, Churchill thought parties are necessary. Churchill often tried to, to found a party of the center in order to exclude the extreme, as he regarded it, of socialism from even being an effective opposition. So that is the particular way in which Churchill compromised party. He also had his wars with his own conservative party, especially when he was out of it, because he thought that party was introducing class politics. And he wanted to overcome those politics. He thought that was the crisis of Britain of his time. I also noted in the introduction, you went to great pains to point out, he was loath to engage in personal tax. In fact, on, on Roman numeral 31, you write, of the Roosevelt administration, not significantly of Franklin Roosevelt directly, Churchill wrote that it featured efforts to exalt the power of central government and to limit the rights of individuals and to mobilize behind this reversal of the American tradition. Noting, I think along the way, that he was loath to go after individuals, but very eager to go after ideas. But uh, he, he was not a rancorous man. Of course, he's, he, he's a brilliant talker, and he could denounce people in their famous denunciations of people. I'll give you my favorite example. So the first socialist prime minister was Ramsey MacDonald, and, uh, and uh, Churchill said that uh, when he was a boy, his dad would take him to the circus, and he'd see all kinds of macabre and odd things. But the one thing so ugly that he was never allowed to look at it 
and I, I, I become a grown man, and for the first time I cast my eyes sitting there on the treasury bench at the boneless wonder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so harsh. Oh, it is so, pretty harsh. So he said that, and, and many things like that. But Churchill, uh, only in regard to two people do I know of, that Churchill held personal rancor over time. And one of them was Stanley Baldwin, and one of them was Admiral de Brobeck at the Dardanelles. Uh, oh, no, both but, of which richly deserved that enmity. You write, on, again, on, on Roman numeral 32, Churchill said of Clement Attlee, the labor prime minister at the time, that he was, quote, an honorable and gallant gentleman and a servant of the nation, even though he didn't care a whit for anything that Attlee believed in and had some very harsh, you know, uh, uh, retorts about him over his time, right? Oh, yeah. And there, and there are forms of address in the House of Commons. So you're a right honorable friend or an honorable friend, or you're an honorable member opposite or a right honorable member opposite, right honorable means you, you're in the government, or have been, and gallant means you've been in the military and served. And uh, oh. you use those forms of address. Oh, and those forms of address are good for a country, oh, yeah. aren't they? Well, it's supposed to be fierce, and it's supposed to be civil. And Churchill was very good at those things. Fierce and civil. We have fierce right now. We lack civility, partly because of the age in which we live. I wonder at Hillsdale College, we'll be right back with Dr. Arndt. The occasion of this conversation is Churchill's trial releases tomorrow. You can order it at Amazon.com. You can, of course, get it at bookstores around the country, and you ought to read it with us. We're going to come back and talk about the rest of the introduction when we do that. But I wonder at Hillsdale College, do you patrol the social media of the students, or do you allow them to dictate for themselves the level of civility they will adopt? No, well, once in a while, we, you know, we don't patrol them, but once in a while they do something bad and somebody tells us about it, and then we bring it to their attention. And bring it. <laughs> <laughs> Down Parents Weekend, did you discuss that in any of your, no, no mom or dad's going to like hearing about that, I imagine. Yeah, no, there, well, you know, we have an honor code here, right? I, I meant what I said, we hardly ever discipline the students. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Aaron, president of Hillsdale College, author of Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. Stay tuned. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue on Monday before the Democratic debate. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, part one of this week. I'm at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, where the Democrats will gather tomorrow night at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas to, quote, debate, close quote. And that debate will have nothing of the sort of debate that Winston Churchill, the subject of this in the next many weeks of the Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, was familiar in the uh, parliament. Uh, Dr. Arn's brand new book, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, begins this way. This book is about Winston Churchill and the trial that he faced throughout his career as a statesman. He thought this trial inherent in modern politics, having special features in Britain and the other liberal democracies in the 20th century, he thought that war had always been a problem, but in modern times it was a different problem and worse. He thought that certain problems in peace and domestic politics had always been present, but in modern times these two were different and worse. He thought that the same factors made the problems of war and the problems of peace worse. He regarded these factors as unavoidable but necessary to mitigate and control. To him, the tools of mitigation were chiefly three. Popular rule, statesmanship of a certain kind and quality, and constitutionalism of a certain kind and quality. That is an elegant first paragraph, Dr. Larry R. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, but there is a lot there 
about which we're going to have to unpack slowly for the Steelers fans and people from Michigan. But I want to begin with the very next sentence first. Winston Churchill was a Democrat with a small d. Would you explain to people what you mean by that? Uh, Churchill thought that uh, people had the right to govern themselves and that no government was legitimate to which they had not consented. And that's a controversial thing because in recent memory in Britain, his country, uh, uh, members of the hereditary aristocracy had controlled one of the houses of parliament and had very extensive influence over the other. And Churchill believed that uh, the people should pick the government and have the constitutional authority to do that. Now, you write about statesmen now, and he believed that the most excellent levels of statesmanship to be right depended upon natural gifts that could not be taught, but he thought that they could be armed. And I want you to explain that as well, because that explains why we're going to spend so much time on Churchill. We're trying to arm people, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. Churchill thought that, like Aristotle and like the classics, Churchill thought that to that statesmanship is like what we all do, that we all have to make choices in life and we all have principles, but we all face necessities. And making the right choice in the face of the contradictory claims of those two is the art of life and how you build your character. And he and Aristotle points to the statesman as the best exemplars of this ability that we all need. And, and Aristotle says this is very difficult, hard for them to do it. That means not very many people are really good at it. And so with Churchill, you find somebody who does it for a very long time in huge world crises that are like the ones we face today and that made a big, rich record about it. So you can read what he thought and what he did, why he did it, and all the circumstances he did it in. So there's a great chance to learn in there. But even though he was a statesman and he admired statesmanship, maybe the key line in this introduction, one can see why Churchill or any statesman would find constitutions inconvenient. They are fixed and hard to change. The law obstructs the will and constitutions. The grandest of laws obstruct the will most grandly. So even though he enjoyed being a statesman and was good at it and aware of his greatness at it, he nevertheless understood that constitutions were necessary to limit the genius of statesmen, and they did not have one in Germany, and that was the problem. That's right. And, uh, you know, think of today, right? So today we live in the age where government's got to get on. It can't be impeded by separation of powers and checks and balances. And statesmen, I mean, I think I recall some recent president who said, if Congress won't act on immigration, I'm not going to wait for them. I'm just yep. going to go ahead. They've got a de deadline, and I'll do it on my own if they don't act. Well, that's not exactly a constitutional spirit. And you can see why a statesman, and their job is to adapt to circumstances, wouldn't like these rules that involve the check what they do. And so when you see somebody like Churchill, who did talk about constitutions all the time and try to build them up, then you see a kind of a contradiction that's interesting and tells you something. And so those are the three things you need for freedom. You need popular rule to be a Democrat. You need statesmen for periods of crises. And you need constitutions to limit the statesmen. Did right. he, was he fully aware of that early in his career, or did that come to him only as the first crisis of the first war came and went and the second crisis approached? Well, Churchill learned a lot. 
he was a very brilliant man, and he was in politics for so long. So he was elected to Parliament in 1900, and he retired from cabinet office in 1955. And he actually served in the House of wow. Commons until 1962. So he had a long career, but it's amazing how much he knew, and, I, and, and my argument is all of the main things, by the time he was 25 to 28 years old, and he had written books that displayed his knowledge of those things by then. And so this affection for the Constitution and understanding of its urgency was a feature of his politics early on, and this uh, uh, devotion to popular rule, being a small-D Democrat, was apparent from the get-go. And Churchill was very interested, even as a young man, and what it takes to be great at managing the state. And so he, tried, there, we, tried to achieve that. We're not coming up with easy excuses for young people that are sometimes offered today about late maturity and growing into adulthood and postponing adulthood because of economics. Churchill would have none of that. He, he was fully formed and ready to ride as a soldier by the time he's 22, and then fully formed and ready to enter Parliament. What did you say, 25? He was 26 when he was elected 26. to Parliament. Wow. And, and by then, he had fought in three wars and observed another as a spy and written best-selling books about two of the wars. And then he got now, elected to Parliament at age 26. Does obvious genius excuse young people? Do you run into this question in your seminars that Churchill can't apply to me because he's a genius? Uh, well, genius matters, sure. But all of us have some capacity, and all of us need to make choices. And so... We should all try to make them as well as we can. And if we work as hard as we can, we'll do better. So we can all be armed, to use That's your right. phrase. That's right. And that, that, his argument was, he's, he's writing about generals. That, 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 uh, the difference between a taught and armed is a distinction that he makes explicit in Marlborough, his life and times, one of his best books. And he's describing the first Duke of Marlborough and how awesome he was and how he won all his battles and how he destroyed the armies of Louis XIV and nobody else could have done could do it in that age. And he says, you can't do that unless you have a genius like him. But on the other hand, anybody who's got that genius could do with some instruction. And he, Marlborough, benefited from some. And what Aristotle's kind of instruction? Argument, and also Churchill's argument is, the rest of us all have some capacity, some very extensive capacity. It's innate in the human soul to choose our way well, and we should study how to do that. I'll be and right remember, back. Your with... audience is an audience of citizens who are mainly concerned about the state of the country. And Churchill is very instructive about that because he lived in a time when this kind of government was growing up. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry R. and his brand new book, which you've got to read, Churchill's Trial, available at Amazon.com, linked at HughHewitt.com, and available in bookstores everywhere. I'll be right back. 34 minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry R. in the first of two Hillsdale Dialogues this week on Monday in this third hour and on Friday in the third hour as we begin our, our study of Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. It is now out. It comes out tomorrow. You can order it tonight on Amazon.com. You can even have an overnight ship that will be on your doorstep on Wednesday, and then you can follow along on Friday when we tackle Chapter 1. But in the introduction, I want to make sure I at least line this for people out there. You write that Churchill grew up with modern Germany, and I just got done teaching my undergraduates about Bismarck and his 1860 to 1891 project, which brought about the furious might of Germany. 
But it grew up with a flaw, Dr. Orrin. It did not have a British constitution to guide it. It just had Bismarck. Yeah. Well, that Churchill thought that uh, Churchill was a great admirer of, of Bismarck and welcomed and was glad that there was a strong united Germany. And under Bismarck and under William the first, uh, the, Kaiser, the first Kaiser, his boss, they were a, a great force for stability in Europe, Churchill thought. But you're right. In the second generation, they were like the spoiled rich kids, in my description, because they took a lot of risks that Bismarck didn't take. And uh, Bismarck, Germany had his, his position in the middle of Europe, and so Bismarck made treaties with France and with Russia, the two great powers that you know on either side of Germany, and worked hard to get along with them. And no, I, I... They, that, that broke down in the next generation. I, I, I love being able to ask an author questions that I make margin notes about. And here's my mm -hmm. first one. You, I, I want to know why you included this in a book on Churchill. You write that Wilhelm I was now Emperor Wilhelm I of the German Empire. This is a grand title, but it was less grand than the title Emperor of Germany. The princes agreed that he was Emperor over an empire, but not over Germany. More importantly, they agreed he was sovereign over one nation, a nation born in war. It's story to be dominated by war for three quarters of a century. Why did you think it important to include that very interesting distinction about being the, the German Empire but not being the German Emperor? So I wanted to show two things. One was Germany, modern Germany, was the thing that came to be during Churchill's lifetime. And, you know, his... His life is dominated by a struggle with modern Germany in the First and Second World Wars. So first that, but second, that there were checks on the power as it was formed that Hitler eventually swept completely away. And I go into that later, right? So Hitler does not become Chancellor of Germany except on a promise that all the parties and President Hindenburg, the World War I general hero, uh, would agree to a law that said that Hitler's cabinet could pass on its own authority any law that it wanted, regardless what the Constitution said. So Bismarck's Germany doesn't have power concentrated like that. Hitler's Germany does. And in the introduction, you also give a brief but coherent overview of the First Great War. And you conclude, though they suffered, suffered terribly, the German people had not felt the weight of the fighting as dreadfully as the nations in whose midst the war was prosecuted. You also write the arrival of two million Americans shift the balance. Why is it important, again, for people to understand that Germany had not felt that? My question mark. Why well, did Larry Arn include that? Because you have to answer, you have to ask yourself, because remember, Churchill saw what I'm trying to describe in the beginning, or describing, I guess, is... Churchill saw the invention of a new kind of regime or government, something that had never existed before. The modern scientific mass tyranny, the totalitarian state. And, you know, we have versions of that uh, growing in the world today. The idea that every speech of every citizen across a vast country that also possesses enormous military power can be controlled. And Churchill watched those things created for the first time in world history and fought two world wars against them. And that's a new phenomenon in the world. Nobody had ever seen anything like Nazi Germany or Bolshevik Russia. And that, those same tools, 
I'm thinking of North Korea now. And if Donald Trump, who's called this out many times on this show and other places, North Korea has now perfected those tools of oppression. It's a giant prison camp. Yeah. Well, look, it, that's right. It's a giant. And, and, you know, modern China is not like that, and there are good reasons to be thinking that modern China may be going in a good direction. But on the other hand, Apple Computer has taken off its new news app in China because the news is censored in China. And, and uh, Google has had huge trouble with them because they, they, Churchill said of, of Hitler's regime in, during the Second, the, uh, Second World War, what are they afraid of? Words frighten them. Hmm. You see? Hmm. And yeah. so this idea that we're going to control our people with scientific administrations is a new idea, and it, and it dominates Churchill's lifetime. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn for the last segment of this Monday special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue on the eve of the Democratic presidential debate from the MGM Grand Hotel. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. This is a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, one this week on Monday on the eve of the Democratic debate in Las Vegas. I'm at the MGM Grand at the Washington Post special broadcast, which you can watch tonight at WashingtonPost.com. And uh, on Friday, we'll be doing the first chapter because this is the week that Churchill's trial actually publishes by my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. You can read everything that Hillsdale puts out at hillsdale.edu, including a brand-new course on Churchill, which I believe debuts this week as well at hillsdale.edu. And Dr. Arn's wit and his occasional barb directed at yours truly, always available at hughforhillsdale.com. The third great challenge in Churchill's trial. We mentioned Germany, and we'll be back to Germany. We talked about the domestic tilt going to the left, but the rise of the Soviet Union. And I think it's important that you, you explain to people why you spent time at least explain to me, you gave a short, brief history of why Bolshevism is Bolshevism and how Lenin miscarried, how he had hoped it would actually turn into a... He left a testament, which I didn't even know, Larry, until I read yeah. Well, these guys see... So you can go to St. Petersburg, and you can go to a city on the Baltic in the Soviet Union, in Russia today, and you can go to the uh, ballerina's house, who is the mistress of, of Tsar Nicholas, and that's where the Bolsheviks gathered to plan their revolution in 1916. And what they did was sat in chairs and made lists of people to go out and murder. And that happened in Churchill's lifetime during the First World War. They were actually put in the country by German agents, uh, Churchill said, injected uh, in a sealed train like a poison bacillus. <laughs> Uh, into, Germany, into Russia. And so they founded the second great totalitarian state. And I, 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 I'll just zoom ahead and tell you that Churchill believed that the Socialist Party in Britain would eventually have to develop that kind of government in Britain, like the Bolshevik or like the Nazi, in order to get what it was after because what it was after was unnatural. And, you know, we're, we are going to spend a lot of time on that, but I, I can't get out of this segment and close this week without telling people, because we won't be back to the introduction. Over the next 14 years, when Stalin succeeds Lenin, you write he would overcome or destroy every one of his colleagues, and then you write about how they would execute people. And I never knew this before, Larry Arn. Explain yeah. that to people and the significance. It's so chilling and ominous. 
Well, so all these guys who are in this house in Petersburg, they take a photograph or two of them all, and they're all lined up in a straight line. And Stalin's there, and Trotsky's there, and Berea's there, and Drzezinski's there, and Bagarin's there, and Lenin is there. And they're all lined up, and they're starting this revolution. And uh, Lenin dies of natural causes, and, and Stalin is, succeeds to be the boss. And Lenin is aware of these struggles that might become deathly between his lieutenants. And his testament is about how they shouldn't be killing each other and how Stalin should remain important but not be the leader. And Stalin eventually does become the boss. Russian word for boss is his name, his title that everybody called him. And, uh, and so in the 20s and 30s, late 20s and 30s, he begins to kill off those other senior people. And he does kill every one of them that doesn't die of natural causes. And all of them, he had them arrested, they were interrogated, uh, and they all confessed to crimes that they hadn't committed. Hmm. And they did this in show trials, uh, where they, where they and, and remember, this is an equal of theirs. And he's now arrested them, and he's going to kill them. And they know he's going to kill them after they confess in public, which they do, to things they hadn't done. And so then when, they're, when they're, they do that, and that's, you know, for those are show trials, the Western press is allowed in to see them confess. One of the most important of them is the last one. And he spends two days in his show trial saying, I know that there are charges that these other people weren't guilty and they confessed against the truth. But no, they were all guilty, just as I am. Now, when they, after they had confessed, they, they would get a few days in the prison where they would get to live a little better and have cigarettes and walk outside. And then one day, they would knock on the door of their cell, and they would walk down the hall, and the other pr prisoners would tap on the steel doors. And then they would walk downstairs in the metal stairs into a dungeon, dark, and they would walk along the dungeon floor, uh, the hallway, and at some point along the way, they would be shot in the back of the head. And there was no ceremony, and there was no reading of words, and they were obliterated from history. And, and the question is, why would they agree to all that? And if you want to know the answer to that, read the very chilling and fabulous novel by Arthur Kirstler called Darkness and Noon, which is about those show trials. And what, and what he explains there is that they are committed because they have done the same thing to other people. And so now, whatever dignity they can have means they have to submit themselves to the same justice. You know, uh, when, you, when you quote Darkness at Noon in your introduction, I'm reminded, I haven't read it in forever, and I have to go back and reread it, but I'm reminded of David Mamet's new play about the left, and, and the left uses words, and it requires people not of the left to expose how they use words. I want to end with a political question about today, Dr. Arn. Uh, Bernie Sanders was asked on Meet the Press yesterday, and I was on the stage uh, when they rolled the tape, uh, are you a capitalist? And he said, no, I'm a democratic socialist. Uh, and he's joyously grabbed on that, and he's drawing 20s, tens of thousands and 20s of thousands of people. Are you alarmed by that development? Well, what, what Churchill said about that, about the Labor Party, was in the end, socialism, which aims for a kind of equality that is impossible, 
uh, and it, it does that by seizing the major assets of the society, empowers the government to control people's livings. And Churchill argued also eventually their families, because the family, just like property, is the source of inequality. People love their own kids better than kids they don't know, and yep. they give them benefits. Yep. Is that right? Don't we have yes. to stop that? <laughs> and so, And so what Churchill said is, yeah, so you're going to put the power to control that in the hands of a government, and the government, too, is going to be made up of people. So we selfish types who use our property for our own devices are just like the people in the government, and they will do that, too. And that they will be will. More on that on Friday, the next edition of the Hilltale Dialogue. Churchill's Trial, available today in bookstores and at Amazon.com and at HughHewitt.com. Thank you, Dr. Arnold.